Hi, it's Marco here. Just before we get started with this episode, I wanted to let you know that this episode is available on our YouTube channel as a video podcast as well. So you can see not only myself and Tarek, but this week's brilliant guest. So head on over there. We've put a link in the podcast description and you can watch this episode as well as listen to it. So why not do that and uh, give us a follow while you're there? That would be great. But now we'll get straight into the episode. Hi and welcome to episode 133 of Page One, the Writer's Podcast. I'm Marco. And I'm Tarek. And thanks for joining us on the podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing journeys, find out how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. Now this is a slightly different episode because we're speaking with experts behind the scenes to take your written manuscript into a book and maybe even on to a film. So we've gathered together some of the leading experts, agents, editors, even Hollywood managers, and spoken to them to create a series of behind-the-scenes episodes that can hopefully help your perfect manuscript turn into that Hollywood movie eventually. And today we're kicking off with a brilliant literary agent, Juliet Mushins. Yeah, we're starting off with an agent superstar here. Juliet Mushins began her career in, as an agent back in 2011 and has won the Literary Agent of the Year four times, which is yeah, pretty incredible. Yeah, she looks after some of the biggest writers in the business, such as Richard Osmond, Laura Lamb, Jesse Burton, and she has some really fantastic practical tips and advice for people. You know, what, do you, what does she want to see in your letter? What, 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 how many pages should you be sending in? What's important to an agent that you might be wondering about when you're sending in your submissions? Yeah, it's, it's all the sort of things that if you're, whether you're querying now or you're thinking of querying, it's the stuff that you're worried about. And it's always great getting that advice firsthand yeah. from someone like Juliet, who, as we say, really is one of the leading UK agents. So um, we'll get straight into it and uh, we hope you enjoy the episode. On with the podcast. The Blank Page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. 
So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. So when we have writers on, I always ask, did you always want to be a writer? But um, did you always want to be an agent? Because I know you studied history at, at uni. So was publishing something you always were interested in getting into? So I didn't know anything about publishing. I didn't actually know agents existed really until a reasonable way into my journey. Uh, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I graduated. I thought I might want to work in heritage. So I did a couple of stints of work experience at museums, or I thought maybe I'd sell out and go into law or banking or something like that. I really had no idea. And then when I was at uni, I was whinging about it to one of my friends and she just said, look, Julia, you read faster than anyone I have ever met you're always reading why don't you go into publishing and I remember googling jobs in publishing and it and looking on my university careers website and they were advertising an internship at HarperCollins which was a paid summer internship so I'm from Essex and costing I can't remember how much it would have cost to commute in it was a very long time ago it's probably something like 300 400 pounds a month so that nowadays we've made much more positive steps I think as an industry and not doing unpaid internships but Mm. back then everything was unpaid and (laughs) for me the travel I couldn't have afforded to do it so HarperCollins was offering minimum wage and it meant (laughs) that I could actually do the internship so I applied for it and once I got through the first stage they then sectioned out the internship so once you got through that stage you had to decide which department you wanted to work in and I basically thought publishing was just editors so the internships were actually editorial marketing publicity or sales and from the descriptions of each of them because again it was very opaque at that time most places didn't even have a workable website or really FAQs or anything like that so I thought wow this is so interesting I'm actually learning what the different parts of the business do and I had no idea how different they were so the idea of marketing really appealed to me And I went for that job, all guns blazing, and did not get it. (laughs) I was their second choice. It was for the children's marketing team. And I was their second choice. And it happened that the fiction, adult fiction marketing department needed an intern. So they offered me a role instead for a month. And they were interviewing for a replacement for their current marketing assistant who was leaving to work in a theatre. And they were about two weeks into the interviews and they weren't going very well because everyone they interviewed would say things like, well, obviously I want to be an editor or I don't really like commercial fiction. I want to work on literary fiction, whereas I love commercial fiction and was re- didn't really want to be an editor. And they were complaining and I just turned to my boss and I was like, do you want me to apply for the job? <laughs> she said, yeah, actually, that would be great. So I, I got the job at the end of that. And once I'd been there a couple of years Uh, I graduated in the middle of the recession and they had a hiring freeze and one of the editorial assistants quit whilst I was there and they wouldn't replace him so I inherited his editorial assistant job as well as my marketing assistant job which gave me a real overview I think over a core chunk of the business and I thought actually editorial for me I don't love because it's just about the words it's just about the books and it's not that salesy and marketing I really like coming up with copy and positioning and marketing and sales Mm -hmm. but I miss working on the books 
And by that point, I'd met a couple of agents and I thought, who are these terrifying figures that when they sweep into the office and chuck their coat on someone's desk, the really mean <laughs> editor has to jump to it. I was like, I want that kind of power. <laughs> and um, I, <laughs> I applied to be a PA to two agents at an agency and got that role. And within a couple of weeks there thought, you know what, this is actually what I really love because it combines getting to work in a really hands-on way on manuscripts and work really closely with authors. Also, it means I can work across the board on books. So as a publisher, as an editor, you tend to specialise. So you'll do non-fiction or you'll do science fiction, fantasy, or you'll do crime or you'll do literary fiction. Whereas if you look at my list, it really ranges. I represent Richard Osman, who is obviously a hugely best-selling crime novelist. But then I represent Jesse Burton, who wrote multi-million copy best-selling historical novel The Miniaturist or Taryn Matharu who has sold eight million copies of his YA fantasy and had I stayed in an editorial department I'd have had to pick a lane and stay in it Mm -hmm. whereas in agenting I could move across the board and I also am very business-minded and I like the selling of books as well so I feel like I get to use my marketing background and my editorial background and I'm always particularly smug when copy that I've written in a submission letter for the publisher makes it onto the book and amazingly recently I had a publisher tested a load of copy lines and my one from the original pitch outperformed every single other copy line they had and I was like guys you're welcome bring me in if you want so sorry that was quite a a long-winded potted history but basically I had no idea what agents were Um, (laughs) I feel very lucky that I've ended up in a job that seems to really particularly suit my skill set it's it's interesting what you say there about the 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 seeing the agents as these people that, that that came in and the editors all jumped up to try and speak to them and stuff because we were asking actually an editor um just yesterday it was actually about the sort of hierarchy because um you know, if you're an author, you're you're trying to catch the attention of agents, and then agents presumably are trying to catch the attention of editors, and then internally editors are trying to persuade yeah. other people in the um, publishing house as to whether or not a book should should go ahead. I mean, is it is it as simple a hierarchy as that, or it, what you're saying suggests that there is a bit more? bit bit less of a strict hierarchy in that yeah definitely I would say there is much less of a strict hierarchy I think that the way I always approach it is we're on a team so the author the agent and the editor are on a team Mm -hmm. so the editor wants the book to sell well I want the book to sell well the author wants the book to sell well I would say that the agent and the author have the closest relationship and often Mm -hmm. that's because of the consistency so some of my authors I've represented for 12 years since I first became an agent they might have moved editor three or four times or they might have moved publishing house but I've been the consistent person throughout the process Uh, I would say that there definitely is an element of wanting to catch editors attentions and when I was uh, an agent at the start of my career I definitely felt like I was terrified of editors and I when I sent out a submission it might take months sometimes to hear back on something or something like that. Whereas once you've got an established track record, editors want to receive submissions from you. So even if a book is a no for them, they will still want to say, stay on your good side to make sure that they're included in your submissions going forwards. So 
I would say there are definitely editors that I've sold to really consistently throughout my career and we have a really positive relationship whilst also recognizing the fact that there will be times when I disagree with them mm-hmm. because I think maybe their marketing plan for a book is wrong or I'm not convinced by their positioning or the jacket or what have you but it's still even when you have that occasional antagonism I suppose it always comes from a mutually respectful point and I always talk a lot about this internally that I think as an agent you often have to remove your ego from the process of publishing that it's not about being right it's about getting the best result for your author and sometimes that's saying I don't necessarily agree with this stance but they've come up with this explanation they really believe in it so actually Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be for the best in the long run if we accept their expertise yeah and and as an agent, I mean, I suppose two part question. One, how many submissions do you get on a weekly basis? And what is it about a query that really makes it stand out from that, no doubt, massive number? Yeah, so we have a shared submissions inbox. So you send to, there are four agents working here. So you send to a general submissions inbox and just mark it to the attention of one. So we probably receive as an agency, maybe 8,000 a year, something like that. Wow. We all That's have crazy. Yeah. And we all have slightly different tastes or, or sometimes something it was funny. We go through our submissions inbox every Tuesday afternoon, we sit down all four of us and we go through and something might have come in for me but I'll say oh it's got this very specific thing in like if it's a toxic friendship or it's millennial I know my colleague Rachel will want to see it rather than me or if it's something involving the French Revolution or heists or sexy elves I know that my colleague Liza <laughs> is going to be all over that one so, sexy el- how many sexy, sexy elves elf submissions do you get well, quite a few. I mean, Sarah J. Maas has made a bit of a name for herself in that area of the market. So we tend to, to learn quite quickly. Whereas if it's something involving a child killer, a cult or multiple wives, it's always like Juliet will want to see that one. Um, so we, we do share submissions internally and quite a few of people who've been signed by the agents, you might have submitted to me, but I pass them to my colleagues because I know it's better fit. When it comes to what makes something leap out to me, I am really drawn to high concept books. So what I mean by that, and it's probably partly my marketing background, but partly just my taste in books, is books which are quite easy to pitch. So a quiet character study, I'm probably not your gal. It's it's not really my cup of tea. Whereas something like uh, The Couplet Number 9 by my author Claire Douglas, which has sold a quarter of a million copies. The pitch for that is a young woman inherits a home from her grandmother who has Alzheimer's. They do some renovations in the garden and they discover two dead bodies that date back to when her grandmother lived there. Was her grandmother involved? Unfortunately, she can't remember. So it's those books that have quite a a clear hook. Mm -hmm. You get a real sense of who the character is and what the question is at the heart of the novel. And whether that's in historical fiction like Ariadne by Jennifer Saint, which I represented, which was a feminist retelling of the Ariadne myth from the perspective of Ariadne and Fedra, or it's the Thursday Murder Club, a group of pensioners in a luxury retirement village club together to solve cold cases and finally have a real murder on their hands. So books that have that very neat top line hook, I'm quite drawn to. And I would say that cover letters, which hint at the reading experience I'm going to get, that's what I'm looking for. It doesn't need to be a flashy, funny, particularly innovative cover letter, to be honest. It just needs to tell me 
the hook at the heart of the book what experience I'm going to get I think presented professionally rough genre a couple of books or a couple of authors you think you sit alongside and then a hook and a bit more of a blurb from the back of the book and and what I love is those queries where I reach the end and I think I have a million other things to do but I'm going to open the pages right now because I want to know how this author is going to handle that. And, and just staying on the query letter a moment, you know, one thing that authors can, um, or aspire authors doing the queries can can worry about are things like uh, comps and things like that. You know, you 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 read things that are sort of like must be within the last five years and all this sort of thing. I mean, how strict is that, or is it more just to give you a flavour of what the book is essentially? I would say it's always a flavour. I think of it as shorthand, and mm-hmm. it, it's think about if I'm describing a film to someone or a TV series, I will normally say something like, "Oh, if you love the Chris file." definitely mm-hmm. check out the Americans. So it doesn't necessarily mean they're exactly the same, mm-hmm. but it means you're going you're gonna to know, oh, it's spies, it's yeah. complex characters, it's quite dark, it's quite adult. So I would always say to authors that even if they can't think of like, it's Fingersmith meets this, saying yeah. readers who enjoy upmarket historical fiction by authors yeah. such as Sarah Waters will probably read my book. So thinking about when you go into a bookshop, where would it be stocked? Will it be on the crime shelves yeah. or will it be on the historical shelves or the general fiction shelves? And and what's the kind of, I mean, if you had to give a couple of do's and don'ts about query letters, things maybe you've seen people make, make mistakes on, what kind of advice would you give people? So I would say be professional and be confident in yourself but maybe not arrogant so I suppose (laughs) sometimes we get cover letters which say things like this is going to be the biggest franchise since the Hunger Games and you're just setting the bar so high that when I open it and read it it's probably not going to live up to it Uh, so I would say just focusing on the book itself rather than everything around it so often people say it could be a theme park it could be a film series it could be a video game just start with the book first and then everything (laughs) kind of comes from there Uh, And I would say having really that core information up front, making the cover letter about the book, not about you. So I think a lot of cover letters I see will give me, I guess I think of it that kind of X factor journey where the person before they come on stage talks at length about their journey and how they got to this point in the past 20 years of their life. And all I'm interested in at that stage is the book. And if I love the book, we'll have that conversation about your writing journey and I'll learn more about you when I offer representation. But what I'm considering is the novel. So you want the cover letter to be about the novel. Yeah. And do you take on it when you, when you get the submission, do you sometimes get submissions that you think this is good, but it needs a bit of work. Is that something that you will sometimes take an author on, even if the even if the book needs a bit more work? To it? Yeah, definitely. So I would expect to do a couple of rounds of edits on any book I take on. So I always advise writers get the book as good as you can possibly get it, but there will probably still be work to do. Yeah. Richard Osman described me in an interview as like an interior designer that I can walk into a space and be like, that's not a supporting wall, so it can go. <laughs> and that we can open up a window here. So kind of looking in that macro way of actually, it's way too obvious who the killer is, or the red herring doesn't pay off, or this subplot pops up two thirds in and it needs to be pulled back through to the beginning. So there will normally be work that I expect to do with an author. 
And what I have to weigh up is how much work I think needs to be done versus what I think the payoff will be. So mm-hmm. if it's a book that I think could be absolutely phenomenal and there's quite a bit of work, but actually I think it will be worth it, I'm likely to offer representation. The ones I would say I struggle with are ones where I think it doesn't work, but I don't know how to fix it. Yeah. I just think that's not something maybe another agent will see a way through or the ones where I think I my edits are so substantive, I'm not sure whether an author would want to do them or necessarily an author would be capable of doing them because sometimes I can think, okay, they're a phenomenal writer, it's a great base idea, but they need to lose 60,000 words and write another 60,000 words in those plays, which does X, Y, and Z. So in that scenario, I might say to the author, these notes are huge, there is no reason you will want to do them, but if you do them, I would happily read a revised version and a couple of authors I've signed and sold have been on the back of revised versions that they've submitted me. Is there, is there a, you may not want to say this, but I mean, is, is there a percentage of submissions that you get that are just, you know, you know, immediately, no, this isn't good enough. You know, is there a certain slice of the, of your of those 8,000 queries you get a year that are just like not ready yet, essentially? Yeah. So I would say there are, there are two stages. There are some that just aren't ready yet. So someone has just reached the end of the book, typed the words, the end and thought, I'm going to send it out. (laughs) And actually I would say it's always better to put it in a drawer for a month not look at it and then when you get it out again you will immediately see much more clearly strengths and weaknesses whereas you're too close you can't see the wood for the trees because you've just done it and you either think it's all terrible or all brilliant Mm. whereas lots of my authors say the moment they realize the crucial thing that needs to be fixed is the moment they've hit send on the draft (laughs) and that's when they realize oh actually now I've done it I can see that needs to happen and I would definitely say there are a portion of queries where it's just it's just no quite quickly and I'm always struck by a fact I remember an editor telling me years ago which is something like more people want to be authors than read books and so what I think is some people just see it as a bit of a lottery ticket that it's anyone can do it and you hear the success stories of people like JK Rowling so you think okay I'm going to be a billionaire this is yeah. my ticket to yeah. the Hunger Games franchise. One book and Netflix will come calling and that will be Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So I definitely think there's there's an element of that. And hey, it's probably true in most industries. Like we've all seen someone who is terrible at art show you their <laughs> artwork, right? Where they're like, I'm thinking of selling this and you're thinking, please, no one's going to buy it. This is, what are you thinking? So it's probably true of multiple <laughs> I'm, when you're when you're looking at, at, at a book and making that decision about whether to take it on or not because you're thinking well where would this go in the marketplace you know you, you always have to have one eye on on what people are, and, and, and imagine what editors are, are looking for so are you are you having constant back and forths with editors about what they're looking for what's selling well what's the next big thing yeah so it, it's a mixed bag really so I would say the first thing is when I'm reading is do I love it And then the second thing is, can I sell it? And without the love, there is no sell. Mm. You have to have that passion and that belief to get over the first hurdle. But some books do fall at the can I sell it? And sometimes it's that I maybe have tried something in a similar area before and editors didn't respond to it for quite a concrete reason or an editor bought it and then it didn't work in the market for another reason. There are some books I've sold in my career 
that haven't done that well that I think were perhaps slightly ahead of their time. So they were trends that I've seen come around maybe seven, eight, nine, ten years later. And I think actually, if this author had yeah. been published now, they'd be much more successful. But I also tend to think that if I really love something, I am a very commercial person. And if I really respond to something, I tend to think probably editors will respond to it as well, that there's something about it that's going to capture people's attention. Mm -hmm. And there have certainly been books in my career which were before a trend or maybe started a trend. So I think when I, well, I remember when I sold The Miniaturist, a lot of publishers when I was pitching it were saying, we're not really sure how this would work. It's feminist golden age historical fiction that's not really a genre Juliet and I was like I really think there is something here I think that reading group readers and historical fiction fans will read it and I would say that that book sold millions of copies was a BBC drama and is now used as a comparison by many many other authors in that area or The Silent Companions by Laura Purcell which is a gothic horror when I sent that out on submission I had no comparison titles because there wasn't anything else quite like it whereas now there are so many books I see launched and sold which have basically an identical cover to The Silent Companions or say if you love Laura Purcell you will love X or Y so I am not a particularly trend-driven agent and I don't think I ever will be, which is possibly a peculiarly arrogant thing to say. But I do tend to feel that if I love something and I can recognise a market for it, that I believe editors will. And I think maybe as well, I don't come from a hugely, hugely bookish background or family. No one in my family works in publishing. My dad is, has recently been introduced to Lee Child by me so he's <laughs> currently reading Lee Child which is the only novel I think written this century apart from the Thursday Murder Club that he's ever read he <laughs> is was will like be reading Proust and for the fifth time and then a Lee Child novel and I watch <laughs> a lot of TV I read a lot of comics I read a lot of online comics um I I'm a wild consumer of general culture. And I think that maybe helps me pick out books, which I think the wider public will respond to rather than always thinking about what have readers read before. It's more about if people are responding more widely to this particular thing, then I think they'll like this book. Is there an aspect as well, just following on from that, I suppose that it, it can be difficult, you know, publishing isn't a quick process. Um, so you know when someone's starting out writing a book it might be years before it's it will be years sure. normally before it's in the shop so the market is going to have changed by that stage anyway so being beholden to the market as it is is probably a mistake anyway. absolutely that's absolutely right a book that I sell now will probably publish in 12 to 18 months so if you are writing to a trend mm -hmm. you will probably have missed the boat on that trend and I think that it's much better as a writer to stay true to your vision than it is to think I'm going to try and do exactly what that person's done. And to come back to Lee Child, who, whose books I absolutely love. I think there have been so many attempted imitators of Reacher, yeah. but there's only one Jack Reacher, actually, and yeah. readers who are loyal to him won't necessarily jump to the other books that are attempting to do what he does. And when you look at the submission that an author will give to an agent and compare that to an agent to an editor is there similarities there or you know just what's the difference between the types of submissions that you will give to the, like an editor compared to how an author will give to you 
So they're similar in some ways. I send a letter with the book to the publishers and it will do some of the same things that a query letter does. So it will have a hook, it will have comparison titles, it will have a pitch. I'll then let the editors know what rights I'm offering. So whether I'm offering, well, I'm always offering UK and Commonwealth rights, excluding Canada, and then I'll try and sell the book in America and I'll try and sell the book in translation into other countries as well. And I'll often set a deadline with a submission as well, which an author can't really do when they're setting it out. <laughs> Get back to me in a week. Now, I'm not saying the editors are always particularly respectful of deadlines either, but I probably have a little bit more power in that scenario than, than an uh, unagented writer does. But they they are quite similar in what I'm in what I'm doing. And when I send a book on to editors, I always put in two or three comparisons. Now, they might not always be book comparisons they might be author comparisons or sometimes they might be a film comparison I remember with the silent companions one of my comparisons was the film the others or I might mention a big video game franchise or a big tv series I sold a novel last year by an author called actually I saw it two years ago it just came out this year called 12 secrets by an author called Robert Gold and I pitched it as Harlan Coben meets Broadchurch and that was the copy line that they tested and went <laughs> down extremely well with with readers. And the, the book's been a bestseller. It's a, it's a brilliant book. But I will always have those kind of shorthand comparisons in a, in a cover letter to editors, too. Yeah. And how important are, you know, we hear about the, the, these big book fairs, this London book fair, this Frankfurt. How important is that to your process to your to selling to editors and things like that so book fairs are important for us as an agency that sells a lot of foreign rights so at book fairs we will meet french publishers german publishers taiwanese publishers korean publishers american publishers etc etc and it's a great chance to meet people that we already have books with and to discuss how the book has performed to maybe show them the uk jacket or the us jacket to share reviews or sales figures or other successes with them so we will often see a spike in business around the book fairs but i think that they perhaps authors perceive them in a different way to how they actually are, if that makes sense. So the work of a book fair starts months in advance. It's not like I just show up at the book fair with some ring bound manuscripts as it was in the days of yore, where you would literally, I remember talking to the agent running into her at Frankfurt, actually the agent who sold perfume, the story of a murderer. Oh, yeah. And she said she had literally showed up at the fair with 40 ring bound printouts of this book and people were coming to her table to read it and to make offers. Now, now we have email that obviously doesn't happen anymore. So everyone probably already has the material, might have read the material, might have turned it down or might still be on the fence. And that meeting is a chance to say to them, I know you haven't offered on this yet, but it's just hit number five in the UK. This is how many copies it's sold. Here's a physical copy as well. And actually being able to show someone how beautiful something looks or it helps them see how it could work in their market. But the work of book fairs continues all year round. It's not a case that the book fair is we wait and then we sell things at the book fair. And most books which are announced at the book fair, the deals were probably, I announced a deal at the book fair this year that I did nine months earlier. Oh, wow. So it, it, lots of, everyone's always like, oh my gosh, these editors aren't sleeping. And I'm like, mm, most of things were done <laughs> some months ago. And and when you've, so you've, you've, you've got to the stage where you've, the, the, the book's edited, you've 
you've got you've got an offer from a publishing house. I, I presume at that point you then enter the contract stage of yeah. it. And and what's the negotiations like at that point? And is that something the authors you know do you butt heads with the author about what you're able to get for them? Is that something you've had a problem with? No, not really, because fundamentally, sometimes an author will ask about something and I will be in the position of saying, they're never going to give this to us. <laughs> I've been doing this job for 12 years at many agencies. I have never seen them give this thing. They will never give us this thing. So normally it's quite a straightforward process of me explaining it. But most authors sort of leave the agent to it because that's one of the reasons you have the agent, right, is my expertise. So I know that Pan Macmillan normally offer X rate on trade paperback or this paperback riser or this high discount clause. Therefore, that is what I will be asking for. And the publisher will argue to give me the worst royalties I've ever had from them. And I will ask you to have the best royalties I have ever had from them in the deal. And you have more negotiating power as an agent than as an individual because you're not negotiating as an individual. Yeah you're negotiating as someone that's maybe done 40 book deals with this publisher and will continue to work with this publisher for decades and they will continue wanting you to sell them books and wanting to carry on doing business with you. So it's in their best interests to make sure that the deal they give you is as good as it can be. So negotiating as an agent is not normally too antagonistic but there are are occasional contracts departments where you just think come on look at the bigger picture here you're arguing over something that we a subsidiary right that we both know is never going to be exploited so why are you being so difficult about this (laughs) but it's one of the reasons you have an agent isn't it is to make sure that the business side of things is looked after as efficiently as possible and what uh, what are the I suppose soft skills of of being an agent that you use with authors and things like that so I love people I would say I'm good with people you're going to be sat there like she's terrible she's the most (laughs) person we've ever spoken to I'm pretty I'm pretty sure you that's not the case I'm glad I'm pretty good with people and I think I'm quite good at building a rapport with authors and editors as well and I am fair I would say and what I always say to authors is I won't always tell them what they want to hear, but they can always trust that what I'm telling them is probably the right thing for their career. So sometimes it will be like, you know what, back down over this issue because of X, Y, Z. Or sometimes it will be, I completely understand why you're really annoyed about it. Let me talk to the editor about it. And a lot of what you do as an agent as well is, I guess, pouring oil on troubled waters. So making sure that the author and the editor are both happy and have a good working relationship now that might mean occasionally stepping in and saying you know what I actually think this cover is the way to go even if you don't like it or sometimes stepping in and saying I think the publisher's making a huge mistake with the jacket but I can say it in a much more diplomatic way (laughs) because I'm so used to having those conversations and you learn how to advocate as well, that you are advocating for an author and, and their best interests all the time and making sure that their publishers are doing the best job they can for them. And, you know, when, you, when you're getting 8,000 submissions a year, do you have a kind of figure in your head of this would be my perfect number of clients or I can't really manage more than X number? You know, how, how do you manage your, your, your time with all that kind of stuff? 
I'm really funny about this because I always say, I just don't see numbers in a binary way that, you know, it's just, I, I never know. I've never had an exact number of clients in mind because also, and I probably don't know off the top of my head how many clients I have because some clients will lie dormant for four years that they will write one book. I won't hear from them for another three years. Then they'll deliver me another book or even authors that write a book a year. I probably there'll be nine, six to nine months of the year where there's not anything to do for them. And it's in the run up to publication that I'm suddenly really busy. But how I always want my authors to feel is that they're my only client. And actually, it's something that lots of my authors do say about me is that they often forget there are other people whose queries I'm answering and who I am responding to because the joke with getting an email back from me is they normally think I have an autoresponder on because I'm like that. And it's like, oh, Juliet's out of the, no, no, she's replied. She's chasing that up. She's getting the sales figures. Um, I think I'm good at recognizing the difference between important work and busy work. I always remember one of my old bosses said to me, everyone in my office is lucky they can't hear me because they're sick of me saying this. They're just like, love of God, get a new pearl of wisdom, please. For all <laughs> but basically... He always said that as an agent, it's incredibly easy to come to work, have a few meetings, have a few phone calls, answer some emails and go home feeling exhausted, thinking you've done a good job. But what have you put out that day that's going to come back to you? What have you either made a submission, made a connection, sent something out, sent editorial notes to a client? What proactively are you doing? Because it is very easy to just be reactive. I receive... I was being laughed at this week because I said, oh, it's such a quiet day. I've only had 112 emails. This was at 12 p.m. And everyone was like, that's horrifying, Juliet. I said, no, normally I get 400 to 500 in a day. So I could probably spend all day just answering those. But what I try and do is think, okay, these are the things I can handle that no one else can handle. These are things that really do need a response. But actually, what am I doing today that isn't to do with emails that is going to come back either in a new deal for an author or a new connection with an editor or a new client. So that tends to be how I shape my day. I mean, I'll be honest, these, I hear these numbers of, of emails, of submissions, and I, I, and I, I find them quite terrifying. Like I, I, I think genuinely I would be paralyzed sitting there, look at these, these emails piling up. I, I don't know. I honestly don't know how agents manage their time and get work done and sign new clients. It does seem like you've got more hours in the day than most people. I think lots of people do say that about me, that I maybe have like some a secret clone army that are just <laughs> doing things for me. I'm just a very productive person. I'm naturally productive, I think. My sister's exactly the same in her industry. We just get stuff done. And I can be quite antisocial. So I think sometimes agenting can be a job of lots of lunches and lots of breakfast. It's very rare for anyone to drag me from my desk because I always say the real work of agenting is the not glamorous stuff. The real work of agenting is actually the grind of sitting at my desk, reading submissions, responding to important queries, negotiating contracts. The rest of the stuff is kind of ephemera. And what advice, I suppose, what one piece of advice would you give to authors just now who are going through the query process? So try and find a way to separate yourself from the rejections. So I really firmly believe this. I think that as an author, you get a ton of rejections, and you don't just get rejections from agents. Even once you have an agent, you will get rejections from publishers mm -hmm. or you will get a terrible review from the Sunday Times or you will your book won't sell very well or you'll get dropped by your publisher. And I think if your entire sense of self comes from your writing, that is going to be a really miserable position to be in because there are huge peaks 
but also huge troughs in the creative process because of course there are there's no author who basically has every single thing they touched has to gold and they've never had a bad review they've never been shortlisted for a prize and not won or what have you so I would say try and separate your sense of self from your writing and also remember that what's being rejected is that book it's not you but also it might not be your next book so a few of my authors two of whom are Sunday Times bestsellers actually I turned down for earlier novels but I wasn't turning them down I was turning that book down and they went away wrote a different book got signed became a successful writer on that book so just because that book's not the one doesn't mean any book you write won't be the one yeah no i think that's right perseverance is the is the key i think yeah yeah Yeah. um well those were the main questions that we had but we always like to end every podcast by asking our guests the same questions the first of which is what was the last book that you read that you're able to tell us about what was the last book i read i'm currently reading a book called under the banners of heaven which is about (laughs) i read a lot of depressing non-fiction which is about uh the fundamentalist offshoots of mormonism and it's framed around the awful murder of a woman and her young child by her brothers-in-law and then it uses that to explore the origins of the faith, but also some of the more extreme offshoots and the impact that they have on their communities. So that's what I am currently reading. I'm about halfway through it. Is that the one that's Andrew Garfield's in a yes, adaptation? Yes, yeah. Ah, yeah. That's, that's right. Yeah, I've heard of that before. Yeah, oh, that sounds really good. Um, what about the last film that you watched then? The last film I watched, well, I've watched two films this weekend. I watched, I'm a, I'm a member of my Everyman Cinema, which is mm-hmm. an unbelievably expensive membership, but you get <laughs> unlimited tickets for two for an entire year. So I basically was like, I'm going to make them rue the day that they sold the membership. <laughs> they're rinse so them. Yeah. They literally every day, they're like, oh, it's it's you again. <laughs> You're back to see something else. So I saw Top Gun on Saturday, oh, nice. which I loved and then on Sunday I saw Jurassic World which I thought was the best of the three but it's a little bit of a low bar Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton is actually probably my most reread book of all time I've read it upwards of 20 times I love it I think it's the perfect techno thriller and the original film is great but yeah. this was a fun popcorn film, I would say. Cool. Yeah, no, I'm I'm not massively excited for this one, I have to say. But yeah, but the first one, Jurassic Park, I saw it in cinema when it came back for the 20 year anniversary, and it's amazing. It just totally holds up as a. It's it incredible. Could be made last year, you know. It's it's, it's perfect. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. And uh, what was the last TV show that you watched or are watching? The last TV show I watched. I'm currently watching Kenobi. Oh, yeah. Nice. On Disney Plus, I watch a lot of reality TV, so I'm also watching the Kardashians every every week. <laughs> Uh, every week when it appears on my poor um, husband's Disney Plus profile, he's like, can you not use your own profile, please? So it's not just going to come up on the homepage. The algorithm's getting totally screwed. By yeah, the, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, but a couple of things, I, as I said, I watched a lot of TV. A couple of things I've watched recently that I've loved. I love The Lincoln Lawyer. I thought yeah. that was an enormously entertaining adaptation. We're on to series six of The Mentalist, which is wildly fun anarchic crime show about a fake psychic who works um as a kind of profiler with the police force and my favorite tv show i think actually of recent years was the americans which is uh yeah deep undercover soviet spies what happens when an fbi agent moves in across the road from them i 
think it's flawless. There's nothing I would do it's, to for it. a show that which has such a contrived setup. It yeah. never feels it's 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 brilliant. Never. Yeah, never. Yeah. One one of my friends started watching it. She said, "Am I supposed to hate Elizabeth?" And I said, "Yes." And she said, "Will I ever not hate Elizabeth?" I said, "No." <laughs> <laughs> but it, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> brilliant. And oh, the, the the very very last thing we always do is a super quick fire either or, and I always say there's no right answer apart from one. But we'll start off with King Domino or Splendor. I know you're a board game fan. I love both of them so much. I <laughs> actually just went on holiday and we packed both in our suitcase. Oh, I wow. Say... Okay, that's a tough one then. King Domino. King Domino if it's two-player, if it's four-player, Splendor. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> uh, TV or cinema? Cinema. Uh, Night Owl or Early Bird? Night Owl. A fancy restaurant or takeaway? Takeaway. And last one, real book or ebook? I can't pick. I read in both. I'm one of those rare people that is completely format agnostic. I'm always <laughs> a hardback, a trade paperback, or an ebook. That's fine. That's a point for each, so that's fine. Yeah. I've struggled to get anyone to see ebook, so the fact you've said you can't choose is a win for me. So that, that's, <laughs> Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Thanks very much for tuning in. Uh, as usual, if you enjoyed it, please do take the time to give us a rating and review on your favourite podcast app and make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast. Please also give us a follow on Twitter or your other social favourite social media accounts at UK page one and drop us a message if you want to get in touch. Uh, otherwise, have a great week and join us next episode for another special chat with an industry insider. <laughs>